Welcome to Cheap Astronomy's Fantastic Physics Formulas. And today we are looking at Debray's wave-particle duality formula. There's no one single formula that captures wave-particle duality. It's a principle that extends across a lot of physics. But Debray's lambda equals Planck's constant over p is fundamental to the concept. It states that lambda, that signifies wavelength, equals h, Planck's constant, over p, which signifies momentum. That on its own might not signify all that much, but consider that p, momentum, also equals mass times velocity, so that the formula captures a relationship between mass, which is something we normally associate with material particles, and wavelength, which is something we normally associate with, well, waves. There's a fundamental problem with the traditional view of atoms when we think of them as a nucleus surrounded by orbiting electrons. Toward the end of the 19th century, James Clerk Maxwell convincingly demonstrated that a charged particle in motion generates electromagnetic waves, that is, light. But if an electron produced electromagnetic radiation as it moved around and around the nucleus, then its orbit should steadily decay as a result of the energy it loses through producing that light. Needless to say, an orbiting electron in a stable atom at room temperature doesn't do any of these things. It doesn't produce light, and nor does it spiral into the nucleus as a consequence. Debray, indeed Prince Louis-Victor Debray, proposed that electrons around atoms are best thought of as waves, even though in other circumstances they might seem to act like particles. So, rather than thinking of an electron as a pointer-like particle in an orbit, he proposed the whole orbit was in fact a wave. This suggestion provides a mechanism to explain Max Planck's proposal that thermal radiation from a heated material is released in distinct quanta, like little packets of energy, rather than a continuous flow. So, if you heat a chunk of iron, it starts to glow, because its electrons are absorbing energy and jumping up to a higher energy shell, and then radiating off that energy by releasing a photon, an energy packet, which allows the electron to return to its lower energy shell. The quantum, non-continuous nature of the process means there are no intermediate stages in the shift from one energy shell to another. This is where the term quantum leap comes from. An electron cannot exist in between energy shells. It can jump from one orbital shell to the next orbital shell and drop back again, but it's never to be found in transit between shells. It's there, and then it's there. Debray's proposal, that an electron is really a wave, explains all this nicely. As a wave, an electron can only occupy an orbit that allows its waveform to remain in phase with itself. In phase, meaning that it has peak, trough, peak, trough all the way around, with each peak meeting a trough in an orderly fashion. If you tried to shift the circumference of the orbit, then peak might no longer meet trough all the way around, so the wave would be all jumbled up and out of phase. In fact, there will only be a few discrete orbits where the whole waveform can stay in phase around a particular circumference. That's the physical explanation of Debray's formula. The math of Debray's formula of lambda, wavelength, equals h, Planck's constant, over p, momentum, which is mass times velocity, 
is derived from some key mathematical and theoretical breakthroughs made over the course of the early 20th century. Max Planck demonstrated a quantized relationship between the frequency of radiating light and the energy of that light, represented as E equals H, Planck's constant, times light frequency. Einstein then showed that light quanta, that is, photons, had a certain momentum from his Nobel Prize-winning work on the photoelectric effect. And Einstein also demonstrated a certain mass-energy equivalence from his work on relativity, where E equals mc squared. It's beyond this podcast to talk through all the derivation steps in audio. But if you start with mc squared equals h times light frequency, since both sides of that equation each equal E for energy, then you really do end up deriving that lambda equals h on p, remembering that p, momentum, is shorthand for mass times velocity, and that lambda, wavelength, has an inverse relationship with frequency. It's all out there on the internet if you want to give it a try. Go on. Hello, Steve. Oh, hi, Bridget. It's good that you're still continuing with fantastic physics formulas. Have you had any feedback? Are people writing in about new formulas that they want you to tackle? Steve, are you listening? Oh, sorry, Bridget. I was just thinking about the next episode. Well, you've done motion, energy, gravity, subatomics, entropy. What's next? Well, there's a lot of engineering issues to cover. The rocket equation, and something about load-bearing, maybe. And we could probably do a bit more on space-time curvature. Oh, field equations? Well, who doesn't love a good field equation? Do you think mathematics represents true reality? Or is everyone just trying to force a best fit from whatever data is available? Hmm. Well, I do think it's modelling that we keep on tweaking to make the math get even closer to representing reality. But the world's not pure, so I don't think pure mathematics can fully capture what the world's about. Because reality isn't pure? Well, it's messy. I didn't mean that it's immoral or anything. But you do think that math is just an approximation of reality? Sure, but it is a vastly better approximation of reality than any postmodern navel-gazing is going to achieve. You do like rigour, don't you, Steve? Rigour is what rigour does, Bridget. Like my old gaffer used to say. Steve, I think that you're a bit of an old gaffer, yourself. Well, thanks, Bridget. Today's formula is about gravity, and the formula reads as follows. F equals G times big M times little m all divided by the radius squared, where that radius is the distance of separation between the centres of the two masses, little m and big M. F stands for the force of gravitational attraction, and G is our universe's gravitational constant. This is Newton's law of universal gravitation, and it's pretty useful for many purposes, although no one considers it to be universal anymore preferring Einstein's theory of general relativity to provide a more exact representation of gravity. Mind you, Einstein's theory may have its limits as well. 
for example, at the event horizon of a black hole. Nonetheless, general relativity more effectively explains that the vector of motion of one massive body is naturally bent towards another massive body, because all massive bodies naturally bend space-time. So, for an Einsteinian purist, gravity is not a force. Indeed, it's not really anything. What we call gravity is just the effect of space-time curvature influencing the trajectory of things. But, until Einstein came along, Newton's universal gravitation equation proved very versatile, and it remains an excellent way to approximate the effects of gravity today. It only begins to fail in close enough proximity to very massive objects. For example, it can't quite manage to model the orbit of Mercury around the Sun. And as for black holes, well, just forget it. In its day, though, Newton's law of universal gravitation was quite something, providing a rigorous mathematical framework to not only model how apples fell from trees, but also how planets orbited stars. And despite the enormous breakthrough that this represented back in 1692, Newton, to his credit, had an inkling that something wasn't quite right when he said, that one body may act upon another at a distance through a vacuum, without the mediation of anything else, is to me so great an absurdity. So, Newton was clearly troubled by the idea that gravity was an invisible force that somehow acted at a distance through a vacuum, but he had no other explanation to offer, since he had no idea that space-time went all bendy in the presence of mass. If it was somehow possible to introduce Newton to Einstein, Newton might have picked up the idea of general relativity after a quick chat. And if Galileo had then entered the room, he probably would have joined in with all the forehead slapping too, provided someone was there to translate everything into Italian. To his credit, Galileo, back in the 1500s, had shown that completely different masses will all fall at the same rate of acceleration, if they are dropped from the same height on Earth. From Newton's formula, the apparent gravitational force between two masses is inversely proportional to the distance that separates them, squared, so that halving the distance between two objects quadruples the apparent force of attraction between them. There is no limit how far that apparent force extends, so at any point in space there will be some measurable degree of gravitational force. This underlies the concept of a gravitational field. In Newtonian physics, you would think of an extended field of variable force, while in Einsteinian physics, it's not really a field per se, just the underlying space-time continuum, and no forces are involved. It's also interesting that Newton's formula has the constant g, a universal conversion ratio that allows you to determine gravitational attraction when measured as the product of two masses divided by the square of the distance between them. That same g is also part of Einstein's field equations for general relativity, where it represents the proportional relationship between space-time curvature and energy density, remembering that mass and energy have an E equals mc squared equivalence. g, and indeed, whiz. The End I bet everyone is asking what the next episode will be about. Uh, <clears throat>